The town had stood for 200 long years. 200 years of storms, of young boys being sent off to war in distant towns. It stood proudly through civil war and floods and fires. While 200 was a blink of the eye in the history of the human race, the town stood as a testament of resilience of the working class, refusing to give up and turn to the cities in times of crisis. Whether it would survive another 20 was not taken for granted. The storms had eroded the storm walls. The state had stopped investing in those walls, claiming the seas rising would come back down, despite no evidence to suggest so, and what remained was sparse. Like everywhere, climate change had scarred the town, destroying access to parts of town and washing homes out to the sea. The past few years, however, had been particularly bad. As the federal government focused on consolidating power in the cities, small villages like this had been left to face the brunt of the ecological costs of capitalism. What little energy focused towards climate change had been pushed to the side, the concern of the state was with the present, not the future. The state was trying to keep the country from slipping further out of their grasp. Short-term survival was the only option. Without state support, the overwhelming responses on most small towns was through professional organized groups that had spun off bureaucratic mega-NGOs like the Red Cross and from mutual aid groups, most of which were woefully short in resources. Those folks started in the places hit hardest, the marginalized groups of urban areas not rural working class folks who saw nothing of help. You understood, but it still was hard to watch as your friends were left to rely on elderly veterinarians as the backbone of community health. The longer you had stayed, the more you realized a community, even a community of about 60 like you had, wasn't enough. The knowledge gaps became more and more evident when emergencies sprung up. Despite the stores of rice and grains, someday they would dry up. What was the plan when that happened? Was this all for show? Instead of accepting the quick, painful death of collapse, were you simply instead choosing the scenic route, one which involved watching those you cared about slowly wither away? There were easy days, and there were less easy days. Looking around, you wondered how it was possible the human race had survived this long. Even with all of the technology around you, it seemed as though survival meant reliance on an infinite amount of people, all borrowing from one another. It seemed impossible that it ever worked, looking back now. You looked towards the ceaseless waves marching as old as time, pulling and clawing at the beaches, slowly engulfing more and more of the land with the help of the Anthropocene. It seems surreal that indigenous people had ever survived, never mind thrived in this environment. All of that knowledge had been long lost. Humanity had become a shell of its ancient self. Humanity had domesticated itself and could no longer survive even the simulacra of wilderness. It sounded like a poorly written book 
where humanity lost touch with its humanity amongst the technology and forgot its roots. A book that was too much on the nose about humanity choosing the path of self-destruction for short-term gains. The story we all knew because we lived it. A story we were all tired of hearing about because it had saturated every moment of our lives until we drowned it out with liquor or sex or drugs or relentless social media. A story that we then began to sell as art and then as culture and then as politics until it all became a nothingness that had wrapped itself around us in an endless tug of war between slow and quick obsolescence in which the human race was squeezed ever more tight. Above the waves, dark clouds rolled in. Tonight, everyone stayed away from the beaches. Charlie warned you about this one. This was going to be the storm of the century. For tonight, you would try to survive. Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the costs of hosting the podcast. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone, but we are starting up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we'll do some critiques on various subject matters and talk about those things not only from an intersectional lens, but also within the context of this podcast. If you're interested and willing to donate, it's up on our Patreon. Base membership starts at $2. We're also working on getting some stickers done. It's just taking some time. We've already got the artwork ready to go. It's just down to getting them printed. And while we do enjoy making this content, there's quite a few hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. So go check us out on Patreon. Additionally, if you are using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks can find the podcast and hopefully join us on our journey. Reviews are incredibly helpful, and we appreciate seeing your time and effort to give us feedback and help us stand out in the vast sea of podcasts. Reviews help us rank higher in searches and also helps us as we try to start incorporating guests onto the podcast, which means new exciting content for you. And you'll get to hear different voices other than the two of us rambling on and on. We've been growing fairly consistently, and that's pretty much entirely to the work you do by giving reviews and telling other folks about us, and that's pretty awesome. We like to think what we're doing is unique and valuable, and our hope is that we can present the current challenges facing the planet in a new light that gives hope and a sense of liberation through understanding how we can individually and collectively make meaningful change. Lastly, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. We don't just post updates about the show, but we incorporate leftist and ecological history, as well as some foraging, hunting, and botanical knowledge that we find interesting, as well as some of the stuff we're up to, like my recent foraging adventures for hickory nuts. And, of course, we've got memes. And if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode of the podcast and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. Further, this episode is the second episode of a three-part series of a mini-series, so we highly recommend going back to one episode at least and checking that out first, because without it, you'll feel like you're not getting the whole picture here. So, 
As I said, this is the second episode reviewing the core function of grazing systems, and in the first episode we covered the role of grasses and nitrogen fixers in building resilient pasture fields. We covered a bit about the role of both C3, that is, cool season grasses, and C4, that is, warm season grasses, and how a basic understanding of how these grasses grow can help us optimize our pastures to maximize production. We further talked about grass management and how to successfully graze without overgrazing. With all that out of the way, we're going to take some time to talk about some other aspects of pasture systems, and we'll get into analyzing potential productivity through biomass calculation in order to figure out what kind of stock rates we can manage based on the efficiency of the pasture converting sunlight into stored energy for our grazers. But we're not going to do all that today. At the end of the last episode, we had talked a bit about keeping nutrients and water on our site in order to keep energy for our system within our property. This brings us to the topic of erosion control, a major issue on failing pasture. Erosion control begins with proper pasture design. When designing pastures, you need to think about the expected movement of animals across fields. Problems with animal movement causing erosion occur more typically with a continuous grazing system or in a sacrifice lot. A sacrifice lot is exactly what it sounds like. A lot that is not meant to be utilized like the rest of the field. This can be for various storage, a place to keep your animals during heavy rains so the paddocks don't get trampled too heavily in the mud, a place to keep animals while there's a fence break, or a place to put animals if you're afraid of overgrazing your other paddocks. Generally, although not always, these areas are transitory spaces and are often used to access other paddocks. Our goal is to minimize the amount of continuous use of land because just like us, land needs to rest in order to restore itself properly. There are a couple of key rules you want to keep in mind as you start thinking about the shapes of how you want your paddock system designed. Now, you might be thinking, I don't know anything other than a bit about grasses at this point. Doesn't it seem a little advanced to be jumping into paddocks? Well, not really. Paddocks can be as large or as small as you want, quite literally. If you're familiar with chicken tractors, they are essentially 8 foot wide by 8 foot long paddocks in reality. If you're not familiar with chicken tractors, they're essentially a chicken run on wheels that can be moved to fresh grass once or twice a day. The function of chicken tractors is the same function of a paddock on a massively small scale. But before I get to that, I realized there was something I forgot to bring up. If you're interested in these practices, but don't have the space and want to get some experience before, let's say, shit hits the fan, you may not be aware that in most suburban and rural areas, you can lease land access for very, very cheap. While I hate Joel Saladin for a lot of reasons, which you can hear all about if you're a Patreon in the near future, where we'll be talking about his recent dive into white privilege fuckery, he does have a lot of videos on YouTube talking about how to lease land to run animals on pasture. It's obviously very intimidating, especially if this is your first realization that this is an option. But it's worth checking into, even if you're only interested in running a couple chicken tractors for some meat birds to understand the mechanics of the process. Oftentimes, 
Folks don't know what you're talking about unless you're in a deep farm country, but you can often rent some easy grazing land for less than $10 an acre and a couple of the meat birds, and your first batch of birds should pay off all of your equipment. So yeah, even if you live someplace pretty urban, if you don't mind putting some sweat equity into trying to put some of these ideas into practice, you can apply some of these ideas without having to make a big investment. Something to think about. We'll chat about chicken tractors in the future, but there's a ton of content on YouTube. Honestly, if you're really curious, that's the best place to start. Chicken tractors are cheap, easy to put someplace, and honestly, if you have 5,000 square feet of grass, you can run one and get one set of meat birds every year. So what can we do before even beginning to lay out our design in order to minimize the risks of erosion? The first is to design fields so that animals travel across hills, not up and down hills. When animals travel frequently up and down a hill, such as to and from their water source or to the barn, that path will likely become the path of least resistance for fast-flowing water, which can create dangerous ditches down the hillside. Pathways that travel along the side of the hill will slow water movement and help prevent ditches from forming in hillsides. Alleys or lanes are paths that provide a controlled means to move animals from one section of the pasture to another or back and forth from the pasture to a barn. If frequently used, lanes might need to be reinforced gravel to prevent erosion. Lanes that are used heavily during wet times of the year can also be reinforced with some kind of fabric to help stabilize the soil. Like we stated earlier, sacrifice areas are areas where you keep animals during inclement, i.e. wet, weather to prevent erosion and keep livestock from damaging pastures. When selecting the sacrifice area, choose an area with good drainage to minimize mud. Do not set up a sacrifice area beside a stream, pond, ditch, or well, which might cause nutrient loss and devastation to your water source. One option you might choose when it comes to your sacrifice area is to use gravel to stabilize the area. Compacting the gravel and topping it with stone dust will not only keep animals out of the mud, but will also be friendlier to their hooves if they have them. If you're grazing poultry, this might not be the best option for you, and you might just want to accept that some areas will be muddy. Also, consider locating sacrifice areas where it is easy to feed hay during the winter months when no grass is available for grazing in pastures. Now, I know you might be thinking, isn't the whole point of this show about not needing outside sources, but you can cut your own hay if you have the right systems. These areas can be reseeded if necessary in the spring once animals are turned into other pasture areas to graze. In a future episode, we're going to be talking about some other systems that can be incorporated into your grazing system that will give more utility to these sacrifice areas, including things like tree hay storage, winter hay feeding, among others. By giving spaces more function, we are better able to utilize our space, creating more efficiencies, which ultimately drive more resilience. Now, when we talk about designing our pasture system, we're referring to the overall layout of the fencing, watering, and animal handling systems. What path does the perimeter fencing follow? Where is the water source located, and how will we distribute water to the animals? How do we make the most efficient use of our space to create temporary paddocks and minimize fencing materials? 
where will be the most effective location for an animal handling system, and how will you configure it? Answering these questions and others is part of proper pasture design and is critical to the success of your system. You should have a system that is effective in allowing proper management of the pasture and livestock. Also, the system design needs to allow efficient use of time and resources on the farm. These things are interconnected and each property comes with its unique benefits and challenges. While we can't control all of them, we want to find the best way to develop long-term, low-maintenance systems to optimize our time and to create systems that require minimum input from industrial resources. A well-designed pasture system should allow you to easily move animals from one paddock to the next, move livestock without undue stress and safety risks, the ability to vary paddock sizes depending on the season, that is, whether your paddock has C3 or C4 grasses, and the current temperatures in your area might affect how large of a paddock you need to feed for one day. And the paddock should accommodate whatever equipment you have, whether it's a wheelbarrow or something larger. In my case, I like to run chicken tractors through my paddocks while I have other animals. I'll talk a little bit about this system in the future, but just something to think about. You may want to be able to make sure you have that kind of access. There are several things to consider when designing your paddocks. You'll need to think about the lay of the land, access to shade and water sources, and the placement of gates for lanes and alleys. Further, you'll want to consider the space needed to run fencing, whether permanent or temporary, and if you're looking to get into the traditional practice of hedge laying as a natural fence, the space required to develop those systems, which may shrink your paddock sizes considerably if you're developing a small system. We'll cover hedge laying in a following episode, as most folks aren't aware of this traditional method of containing animals. You'll almost always hear that these traditional methods don't work, quote-unquote, despite the fact they were in place for literally thousands of years, but they do require skills that are largely forgotten until recently. Anyway, a good rule of thumb is to use temporary fencing for a few years to allow you to determine the best paddock size and layout before installing more permanent subdivision fencing. Keep in mind that staying with temporary fencing indefinitely allows more flexibility in paddock sizes and assures that you have the option to clear out fencing to make things like cutting grass much easier. Further, temporary fencing is good if you're building pasture and you need to keep your animals out of parts of your property. I spoke a bit in the last episode about my own pasture land and that I'm currently building out new pasture space in once dense pole forest to allow my pasture to develop healthy root systems that can withstand the abuse of goats, chickens, and ducks, the field needs a year of undisturbed growing. Temporary fencing is great for this, and the posts and fencing can later be used to manage paddocks until I've figured out the exact sizes of the system in order to not have any overgrazing issues. Simple math shows us that if you want to use the least amount of fencing possible in a pasture, you'll need to make the paddocks as square as possible. However, because most properties aren't square or flat, we can expect paddocks to take on various shapes and sizes. Further, many of us have other things going on on our fields, whether that's berry bushes, fruit trees, sheds. There's plenty of things going on that might impact how we can use our fields. Now, much like us, 
our livestock's primary concern is to have easy access to water. A good goal is to provide water within 800 feet of anywhere in a paddock. Research has shown that when animals have to travel further than this, they are less likely to graze further reaches of the paddock away from the water. Over time, this can lead to changes in the pasture in those areas and nutrient distribution issues across the whole paddock. An even better option, if possible, is to set up permanent water systems that don't require significant inputs. Our goal is not to rely on water systems that require massive external input, whether that be from labor of pumping water and moving it around our property, or from setting up plumbing around the property which relies on other water systems. The goal is to create a system that reinforces its positive properties, right? So this is very theoretical and much more difficult to do in practice, but theoretically we can do this in a few ways. If we have access to streams, building our systems around those streams so paddocks all have access to that fresh water is an ideal option. Things like canals can be really great resources if you have the ability to do it. If this isn't an option, which for most of us it isn't, creating man-made or animal-made water sources is your alternative. This can be through piping water into each zone, watering cans located on each paddock that are filled as necessary, or small ponds on each site. We'll talk about utilizing the landscape for water management in later episodes, which will bring this all together. Now, when setting up alleys, be sure to make them wide enough to accommodate both the equipment you're looking to use, not just to maintain pasture, but to do work on or move your fencing, but if you need to deal with injured animals. Your gate should be wide enough to allow machinery to pass through easily. If you're planning on keeping your livestock within the confines of the paddock throughout the night, instead of sending them back to a coop or a shelter, then you'll want to place gates in corners where it's easier to move animals through to another paddock. You should also think about in which direction the animals are most likely to move through the system and place gates in the corners closest to the paddock into which they're being moved. What I mean by this is that if you've got four paddocks, for example, putting your gates where the four paddocks contact one another reinforces the daily habit that they are traveling through that space every day and reduces confusion. Regardless of the animal species you own or are planning to own, when in the planning phases, it is best to consider where the logical place to establish a livestock handling system would be. For example, a thoughtfully designed handling system would be located where you'd conduct routine or emergency veterinary care for your animals, whether that's vaccinations, worming, or birthing assistance. The handling system does not need to be fancy or expensive, but it must be functional and established in the right location that is close by and accessible. I always think of the worst winter days and how far do I want to be trekking through the snow to deal with my animals. By thoughtfully planning your spacing, you'll minimize your workload, increase the health of your animals, and protect the common areas like alleys and sacrifice areas, which both reduces your workload even more, reduces runoff, and makes everything in general easier to do. While your primary goal, like I said, should be closer to your home rather than further, there are some other considerations to, well, consider, like locating it near the barns or other farm buildings if you have them, placing it someplace that doesn't destroy any good soil drainage, making it accessible especially to trucks with trailers to load animals for transport, 
It's also important to consider access to electricity for lighting and electric tools, such as clippers if you have sheep, for example. This doesn't need to be simply grid power, but if you're planning on putting solar panels on your buildings, that's the building you want to consider is someplace for your animals. So paddock size often varies across the farm. It typically takes several years of grazing experience to learn what size paddocks work best during certain times of the year. So be patient and keep these factors in mind. The things that will significantly impact how successful your paddocks are are the number of animals you're running, the projected dry matter availability, and the consumption of it, which we will cover in the near future, the timing of season and pasture growth rates, and this has to do with the types of grass and forbs that you've got in the ground, the topography of the land, which we talked about a bit when we were talking about forest succession, soil fertility, and soil productivity potential. And again, that productivity potential has to do with the actual qualities of the soil that you can't change. While you can make the soil more fertile with organic matter, you can't change the mineral content of the soil in any meaningful way long term. This is why those temporary fences are so good at first. Even an experienced farmer with all of this knowledge will make adjustments to his paddock layouts, so you should expect to as well. There are millions of factors that will impact the success of your pasture, and many of them take years to make any impact upon, if they can be at all. Further, if you're working on improving the quality of the soil, which will improve the amount of biomass production, what you produce, say, this year, won't be the same as next year. So creating a permanent paddock systems while the pasture is being rebuilt doesn't make any sense and may cause more problems than solve. Further, if we size our paddocks based on future biomass volume generation, then you risk overgrazing the fields and destroying all of your hard work. So, yeah, it doesn't make sense to permanently size and enclose your paddocks until years in, and many farmers today that practice regenerative grazing don't bother at all, and we'll talk about that in the near future. When you begin sizing paddocks, start by considering how many animals you expect to graze in a group. A good rule of thumb is to plan to have an average amount of forage available to feed those animals for four or five days in that paddock. This is just a start. Some people do intensive grazing up to the point where animals are being moved multiple times a day. There are benefits to this, some of which we covered in the soil episodes, and we'll cover them again in this three-part coverage of grazing. But for now, let's just use four to five days per paddock, since it's significantly less work on you and it allows you the opportunity to watch the grazing and gives you some flexibility if land is starting to get overgrazed. You've got time to identify and start to realize, oh, I let this go a little bit too far, or I wasn't sure and I was afraid, so I pulled them off too soon. You'll have time to actually do that assessment of the property, and over time you'll be able to better identify when animals are ready to move to the next pasture. Ultimately, sizes can be adjusted using temporary fencing based on the amount of forage available in the field at any given time. Consider how many animals you plan to graze at one time, as well as how much area is needed to provide them with adequate feed for a specified time period. So you might be thinking, we haven't really talked about how much animals eat. And we're going to talk a little bit about it today, and we're going to finish that up in the third part of this series. The amount of dry matter total livestock weight, 
and number of days you want the livestock to be on the paddock will combine to determine how large or small the paddocks need to be. Dry matter availability can vary greatly, even in forages of the same height. Forage species and density can make a significant difference in actual available forage. I know that might seem like common sense, but it's one of those things that doesn't seem super obvious until you say it out loud. The point is that there are a ton of factors that will impact your rotation, and just paying attention to grass height is oversimplification. Very few of these factors are things you have immediate control of, and so you need to be willing to be flexible. That said, you need to start becoming aware of what those things are so you are better able to predict and therefore prepare for the rotations you'll need, and if you'll need to supplement feed because of quicker grazing across paddocks, and ultimately possibly not allowing the paddock to rest. Pasture growth rates vary mostly by season based on species content in the pasture. Like we said in the previous episode, those C3 grasses, the cool season forage species that grow rapidly in the spring and early summer, but slow drastically in midsummer, and resume somewhat more rapid growth in late summer and early fall, those C4 grasses, that is the warm season forages that will go through their most rapid growth period during the summer with much slower growth in spring and fall, those differences in those growth rates will impact the amount of rest a paddock needs after grazing. We covered this a little bit in the previous episode. You'll want to time your paddocks and seed your paddocks with this in mind so the paddocks that are grazed in the peak of summer are primarily those C4 warm season forages so that when they're eaten you can maximize your biomass volume and the same with your C3 cool season forages, which you'll want to be grazing in the spring and fall. There's not a clear cut between these seasons, so there will need to be gradients of these types of forages as the paddocks continue on. It's very much an art as much as it is a science, and there's no clear cut way to set up your systems. In the future, we're going to talk about tree crops, your nuts and fruits, and how we can use some of the methodologies we covered in the fruit tree episodes, such as clustered fruit harvesting periods, as a way to supplement our grazing systems. And that, right there, that's where stuff starts getting exciting. And I get annoying to people who don't care about this stuff. When we create these systems, it's like creating machines that you can operate without almost any input once they are operational. There's a need for us to maintain the grazing system but the fields can be largely self-sustaining. And I know if you're listening to this and you're running something like an intensive grazing system, you're probably thinking there's still a lot of work involved, like running fencing and spot seeding, and all of that is true, but compared to traditional grazing or even factory farming, human input is significantly limited while also helping soil health. In these types of systems, we have the opportunity to play with nature in a way that we set the stage and she takes off. It's very cool to integrate various systems and theories to try and create something that is unique to you and your property. I know this is getting a little ahead of where we are, but I promise all of these systems and ideas can come together to create some really amazing stuff. So while we've talked about the soil, the grass, and some basics of how grazing functions in terms of the interaction between the land and animals, as well as a quick review of the role of water on our site, let's talk about the land itself, specifically in terms of topography. 
topography can impact grazing management in some cases. For example, cattle tend to prefer grazing low-lying, flat land, but will graze steep land and hilltops if it is necessary for them to reach their needed consumption. Sheep tend to prefer hilltops for grazing, but will graze lower and flatter land if necessary. Goats don't care at all and will, I promise you, they will, defy the laws of physics when it comes to getting food. Temporary fencing can be used to design paddocks to have livestock graze where they are needed, when they are needed, as you learn the layout of your property. If we recall from the forest succession episode, the bottom of hills generally have more fertile soil, so 100 square feet, for example, of grazing space will not produce nearly as much biomass for animal fodder as 100 square feet at the bottom of the same hill. Additionally, there's other layers to this because more fertile soil will also likely draw in different species of grass and forbs, and water runoff will further impact the species diversity, which will impact grazing strategies by your animals. If we think back to the Amazing Graze episode we did that was in the intro to grazing, we talked quite a bit about seeds and targeting your seed purchases based on your soil properties. But we should also consider these microclimates caused by the topography of your property. This is why I had recommended watching the weeds that fill in and the wild grasses that compete with your seedlings because these will often be great indicators of subtle differences in your soil properties, some of which may come from slopes, topsoil thicknesses, and so on that you may not be able to find out without these indicator invasives. And I say invasives not because they are invasive species, but because they're invasive into what you're trying to plant. Like I said before, this process is as much an art as it is a science. This process is even more important for smaller properties where production maximization depends on every square foot and it's possible to know every foot of the site versus someone working on hundreds of acres. By targeting the right species in the right spaces, the pasture will be stronger and more resilient because the species are planted in the right places for their specific needs. Now, even despite these easy examples, there are substantial differences in productivity among soils based on physical properties that are totally out of your control. Over time, you'll learn which soils are the most productive on your farm. Plan for larger paddocks where soils are less productive. Your goal will be to focus more on having consistent rotations more than consistent sized paddocks. When extra forage is available, especially during the spring, harvest these fields as hay to prevent the plants from becoming mature as this decreases their feed value. If you recall from our quick chat on grass life cycles, the thing you probably hated listening to, the younger forage is more palatable higher in protein, and digests easier. Therefore, when pastures are growing rapidly, graze the fields that aren't easy to hay yourself, especially if you're expecting to do it with a scythe by hand. During the drier and slower growing months of the year, the animals can graze fields more easily harvest for hay. In the third episode, I'll cover it in a little more detail, but your C3 fields, for example, if you're getting good rain and sun, not any clouds except when it's raining, you might be able to regraze the same field with a few weeks apart. Let's say you have six paddocks, just to make it simple. Two paddocks are all C3 grasses, that is, your cool season grasses. Two are a 50-50 mix of C3 and C4, 
and two are C4, your warm season grasses. You might do a rotation that is the cool season grass, the second cool season grass, one of those mixed fields, then back through the cool season grass, and do that rotation twice before ever hitting the warm season grass field because you simply don't need to yet because of how good the cool season grass is growing. If the warm season is also doing pretty well, or even better, the mixed field, it's worth considering cutting it down and storing it for winter feed or supplemental feed if there's a drought. I know, that's kind of hard to visualize. I get that. Part of why I wanted to make this podcast, other than the gut-wrenching fear of collapse as I watched the country seemingly spiral further and further out of control since Sarah Palin entered the political arena, was because I felt like, despite the incredible amount of content on the internet, there was nowhere I could find clear explanations and examples of what I'm doing here. Tying together how soil, the sun, the grasses, the fruit trees, and the livestock all correlate with one another in a measurable way, and as a positive spin, also reinforces my politics on communalism, whatever that means to you. Many folks on YouTube will specialize in one or two things, but not too many folks tie it all together. So I wouldn't be surprised if this was not perfect, nor is it super exciting to listen to all the time. I get it. I've been on the other side, even with stuff I want to listen to, and I just struggle to pay attention. I've tried to break this material down into digestible bites that aren't too detail-oriented without oversimplifying anything. It is a challenge, and not only has it been interesting to write and develop the actual text for, it's been incredibly useful for me to help organize my thoughts in a way that creates a bit more cohesion to a lot of these different areas of ecology and horticulture. These fields are vast and incredibly complex, and evolving quickly as new research is going into understanding the natural world around us, now that the evidence is becoming more and more obvious that the current way of doing things just isn't sustainable. Hopefully, despite my own reservations and worries about being totally underqualified to have these conversations, you're finding some understanding that you, too, can do this if you choose to. We have to remember that many of these practices were done by our ancestors at some point in time. Every single one of us, statistically speaking, has had an ancestor who was a farmer, and they likely came from hundreds of generations of farmers. And learning to treat the land as an equal to both us and the sentient life we partner with upon it, we are relearning what is natural to us. The landscape around us, in fact, is only natural with humankind's intervention. The fires ripping across California are a reminder that the land very much needs us as much as we need it. However, we have lost that, and it is only in us trying to find harmony in these practices, whether or not we fail, will we be able to have a simple chance in resurrecting our relationship with nature and the survival of both ourselves and the planet. Thanks for listening, as always. It's Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac.